The biggest area of need in security is really on the enterprise side. Individuals don't really think that much about their own security, but for enterprises, that's a real issue, and that's something that costs them a lot of money. If you try to implement security without taking the end user experience into account, then you're going to run into all sorts of problems. It either won't be adopted or, you know, even worse, people will use it and be miserable. People care about privacy and they care about security, but they also care about convenience. You want to make it as easy as possible for a company to do business with you. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I interview John Whaley, founder and CTO of Unify ID. We start off by getting a bit about John's early career, focused on Mocha 5, the company he founded stemming from research he did during his doctoral program at Stanford. This leads us to an interesting discussion about monetizing university research and the process by which that is accomplished. We also dive into the product and company lifecycle of Mocha 5, understanding all the twists and turns and pivots that they made along the way while raising 84 million in venture. Eventually, we make our way to John's current company, Unify ID, which again came out of research he was doing and is now commercializing. Unify ID approaches authentication differently by adding additional context to login attempts. We'll go deep into their tech and all the various use cases, so you'll hear all about it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, John, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Let's just uh, let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into enterprise software. Yeah, let's see. So I did my undergrad at at MIT. I did my undergrad and my master's there, and then I worked at IBM Research for a while on compilers, like Java compilers. This is back in like the late 90s to 2000s. And then I started my PhD at Stanford. And that's really, uh, at Stanford, that's where I really got into security. You know, I was always into security before that, just in terms of uh, just very interested in uh, in security and, and hacking. And, you know, I do, I would participate in various, you know, capture the flag and like these type of events and stuff. But like, that's where I really got into security. And then through, um, the biggest area of, of need in security is really on the enterprise side. You know, individuals don't really think that much about their own security, but for enterprises, that's a real uh, that's a real issue, and that's something that costs them a lot of money. And so um, that's how I got into enterprise. Um, I was doing my PhD there. We had a a research project that we then spun out into a company. Uh, it was called Mocha Five. That was back in two thousand five. Worked on that for ten years. That eventually got acquired, and then left there, and then started a new company, Unified, which is where I am currently. Cool. Okay, so you studied computer science undergrad, and then you know went. You said you worked about a year at IBM. Yeah. 
I did some summer internships and then I worked about a year there at IBM Research. And it was really, um, this was IBM Research. So it was very like research focused. And that, that's really like the, the community that I came from was really this kind of academia, like, you know, research, like we would publish papers and do these, these type of things. That's my, that's where my original background was from. And then it was really when after starting the company back in 2005, you know, I, what had happened was that I was originally planning to be a professor and go into academia. I had some interviews and I didn't, um, you know, didn't get the the faculty jobs that I that was really going after. So that's where you know I, t- I took a step back and said, oh, "What's really important to me?" And then you know it was really all about impact. And then um, you know had opportunity at that point to to help start a company. I thought, "Oh, that's uh, that's a, that's a cool opportunity." So then, to decide to jump on it and take it, and then you know, haven't looked back since then. You know, it's I, I did go back to to Stanford for a bit to uh, to become a lecturer, and um, you know, since then I've just been very much in um, in enterprise software. Cool. Okay, so you're at Stanford. You said you worked on some compiler stuff at IBM. It's so not really in the security context yet. Mm-hmm. And then you you went to Stanford, and and what sort of what triggered your interest in security while you're at Stanford? Well, um, I mean, I was always generally interested in security, not so much in the enterprise context, but just you know, in, in terms of you know, security of systems, because I was very much into into systems, like everything, networking, operating systems, you know, and much of the, the my research area was in. I was doing static analysis, which is basically you analyze code mm-hmm. to you know help find bugs, and one of the one of the areas you also use it for is for to find security holes, like things like. SQL injection attacks, or you know, buffer overruns, or like these these other type of things, which like bugs which have which are very important, like um, and and were becoming increasingly important to be able to catch because you know as as we became more and more reliant on these software systems, you know, it's uh, the cost of these bugs, you know, and, and the potential impact of having a security hole, you know, was 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 really growing. So I think I was interested in it from the technical side, and then you know, really that the top use case was around doing this type of static analysis to help find these type of security holes in software. And so that's really how I got into that uh, that area. My first company, Mocha 5, this was basically, this was based on a research project at Stanford called The Collective. The basic idea is that we wanted to build this next generation computing utility. This is, if you, uh, you know, rewind back, this is probably, you know, in the early 2000s. I was the go-to IT guy for all of my family and friends and everyone else I knew, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, well, you're doing your PhD in computer science. Like, you can definitely fix my printer. Or, you're a you know, computer or, person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And I myself, like, I was having struggling with how do I manage like desktop windows, things like that. How do I keep things patched and and up to date? You know, installing software, all of these things. Like, it was just a nightmare. And so we envisioned this idea. Wait, of, like, wait, you're saying as the as the IT guy for friends and family, you have uh, you have 20 folks in your organization that are relying on you to patch their systems and, and manage everything. Basically. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. And you know, I, I'd, and I'd sit down on my parents' computer. I was like, oh my God, what, what, what did you do to this thing? And I think, well, I mean, why do you have so many Yahoo toolbars in your, in your internet Explorer? <laughs> you can't even see the window. Yeah. These, um, 
you know, and so I was, I became the go-to IT guy. And so this is the basic idea behind that project was we wanted to make computing more like a utility. It's like you just turn it on. It's like you pick up the phone, you get dial tone, you know, and then really make computers work a lot more like consumer electronics work. It's just, you, you know, you turn it on, it just works. You don't really have to think about patching and updates and these type of things. And, you know, the interesting thing is that a lot of ideas from that, like they were like, when you look at on the mobile landscape, like in terms of the way that the, the mobile ecosystem has gone, they've, they've really taken a lot of these ideas and incorporated on the mobile side. The way we got started on that side was, um, you know, trying to do this for desktop computers. We did it using virtualization, you know, using uh, virtual machines. I mean, uh, so uh, like two doors down uh, office was uh, Mendel Rosenblum, who was founder of VMware. Mm. They were doing a lot of, um, you know, VM for for server consolidation, these type of things. And thought, okay, hey, maybe we could, could use VMs to help solve desktop management. And so that was that was really the premise behind it. Of course, like the, the first time around, we made lots and lots of mistakes, <laughs> like in, in terms of founding the company, in terms of how we approach product and all of these other things. But we eventually did find this niche, which was we were riding this wave of like bring your own device, you know, like things like it really started with Mac and MacBook Air and MacBook Air came out and that was the hot thing everyone wanted to use. But then in the enterprises, they're all Windows shops, right? And so, you know, the the exec would come by as like, here's a MacBook Air, I want to use MacBook Air, right? And then the IT department would say, well, that's not, we're a Windows shop, we're a Microsoft shop, you can't use this. But they were at such a level that, you know, they weren't asking, they were telling right it's like we <laughs> yeah, sure. no no it's like no I, I don't want to be the, the only sales guy in this group that doesn't have the MacBook Air I want the MacBook Air and so you know the the IT departments were then faced with that and so that's where virtualization came in but you also had the security angle there as well uh, like in terms of yes well how do you keep those things secure and everything and so that's we, we found a niche there with we, we later on found a niche on the you know similar thing for for tablets and phones, like this is the iPad, really iPad, iPhone, uh, these type of things. We didn't have all of those enterprise security features, but you, you know, still users wanted to use them. And so in general, like rode this trend from like bring your own device, which is now it's very commonplace. I mean, at that time we called it consumerization of IT, mm-hmm. where it's like you know, took these like really consumer products, and then um, that was really what was driving. Uh, right, driving IT and IT spends, and so through that experience, there heard a lot about um, you know, from our customers, um, really IT departments and and CISOs and like you know and security professionals around uh, like some of the challenges that they had and this tension between security and user experience, and you know heard this all um, all the time, like we because we made a product, we made a product that uh, that was designed for end user use, but it was really an enterprise product. So we had to go and sell to the enterprise. You know, often it would be the security team or the desktop management teams uh, there. But end users would touch this product every single day, and so that dynamic really informed you know a lot of a lot of the way to think about enterprise security and especially like you know the enterprise user that that enterprise end user and what their experience was and i have lots of great stories from that time period like in terms of customers that we had interacted with and just like jaw dropping situations where you know just very creative ways that users would find their way around a security protocol you know, like one of my uh, one of my favorites, which is also it, it's related to the stuff that we're currently doing now with with all the authentication, is um, so we talked with one team at an enterprise company, and they had a set of users that wanted to um, share an account 
for VPN access. So they had one account for VPN access. They had instituted mandatory 2FA, like via physical token, like one of those RSA, you know, secure ID tokens. Sure. And it was just fairly common, you know, this is this has probably been about 2010, 2011, around that time frame. Pretty common for VPN access as high risk access. It requires 2FA. But there's a group of users, they just wanted to share an account. And so what they did was they uh, set up a webcam that pointed at the physical token so that they could then share the account. Like whoever wanted to log in, they could go to this URL, they could see what the current code was, and they could type it in. And that was their low-tech solution to kind of getting around the the challenge, you know, the friction involved in, in 2FA. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Probably and, not authenticated. Uh, no. It's just a random URL, which I mean, it is sure it's more secure than having nothing. But you know, that was probably not what the IT department intended uh, when they said, like, yeah, you need to use two FA. And the interesting thing is, you know, the realization came that you can't blame the users in these cases because you designed, you know, as IT, you designed a system that didn't allow the people to be productive or do what they wanted, and so. You know, like people just find find a way around it. You know, I, it it reminds me of you know, there's so many companies. There used to be a really big thing where it's like we're gonna put a box in your network and we're gonna have all this DLP and we're gonna be this man in the middle proxy and we're gonna we're gonna decode all of your traffic and we're gonna figure out if people are trying to steal IP or you know personal information or like these these type of things, right? Kind of a CAS free space. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. and you know, and then what? So, what do people do? Like they, um, so they get these lockdown machines, and they can't even go to YouTube, or they can't even go to these other these other places. And so, uh, what they do is that they'll get like a four G modem, and they just plug it into their computer, and then all of your millions of dollars that you spent securing your perimeter and all this, that all goes out the window because you completely just bypass it by just plugging in, like you know, a four G modem. Into the yeah. uh, MiFi or whatever, yeah, yeah MiFi or whatever. Like these, there's you know just time and time again like, like these uh, these cases. Another uh, another entertaining case. I remember I was we were working with uh, uh, with Intel, who is very uh, very privacy conscious. I mean, very very conscious around IP and around leaking of IP. And I remember being in. I think it's one of their boardrooms there, overhearing a conversation um, of one of the executives there. They had recently allowed iPhones. Um, so the longest time, um, in, Intel was a holdout. Like they didn't, they didn't allow allow people to have email on their iPhones because they did not have all the security features of BlackBerry, and you know, to be able to say, oh, it's encrypted. Oh, like you know, um, they didn't have all the security features. But there was such. A demand uh, from the employee side, from the end users, that it's like, no, we, we're all we want to use iPhones, and so eventually the IT department relented and they said, okay, well, we will we'll allow you to have an email on the iPhone, but we're going to strip all the attachments. We'll allow the email through, but because because the really sensitive stuff is in the attachments, we're going to strip out all the attachments, and so that's what they had implemented, and so. I'd overheard this call, you know, where um, he's, he's talking to someone. He's like, "Oh, oh, can you send over that presentation?" Oh, uh, wait a second, I'm on my iPhone. Can you send it to my Gmail account instead? And so, like again, just completely bypassing the security protocols. And you can't, again, you can't blame the the, the user in this case because you know they're not trying to be malicious; they're just trying to be productive. And, and so, you know, when you're at Mocha Five. Did you have enterprise software chops? Like I know you were a co-founder. 
did your other co-founders like had they been in enterprise software companies or was this like the first for everyone no first it was the first for everyone i mean we i mentioned we we made a lot of mistakes uh, through that uh, through that whole experience I mean, and and we did a lot of things wrong, and I learned a lot from that experience. But yeah, none of us had had any enterprise experience. And in, in, in fact, like when we when we started the company, we weren't even thinking around enterprise. We were thinking about okay, well, this is this would be a product like your cable company would do. So it's like the same way that you could call up and say, "Hey, I want HBO." We want to say, hey, you you should be able to call up and say, hey, I want Photoshop or hey, I want Microsoft Office, and like, and then they would just be a box that they would give you, just like the cable box, and like that would be your computer. They would back up all your data. They would keep track of everything uh, for you on your computer, and then um, you know you don't have to worry about installing software. So it was like kind of you know this was kind of before really software as a service became big, and this was you know that that was the world that we envisioned. And so like we thought, oh, the people who are the people who want this. Well, clearly it's like you know telcos and and carriers and like your cable company and these type of things because that's that's the future. That's where the way you're going to get your computing in the future. We were very naive, like in terms of trying to understand how that market worked, and so we quickly realized that although all of the carriers claimed that they didn't want to be dumb pipes, like ultimately they weren't really innovating uh, the innovators in that space. And we kind of stumbled upon uh, this use case in enterprise. You know, uh, started with these areas, and like the big impetus there was around okay, people bring uh, Macs, and people starting to bring Macs into the enterprise. But the enterprises didn't support Mac, but they did have security needs, and so we kind of fell backwards into um, into enterprise and in the enterprise space. Okay, so so you're at Stanford. You decide to start this with or were your co-founders also like Stanford like folks you worked with, or how did how did you know your co-founders? That was it was basically our our research group. It was okay. at Stanford, so it was like our my my advisor, my professor, and then um, my other co-founders were were other people like in my research group. Okay, so you had this founding team. You're all at Stanford, and when you raised, you raised like some seed money from from Kosla or A or what was? Yeah, it? I guess it was. I guess it was an A. It was technically an A. It all it all changed. Yeah. Every you know, it was about three three million dollars. So like, I mean, at that time today, today a normal seed at that point like a, a pretty solid A. Yeah, solid A. I mean, and this was, you know, I mean, we really had no clue. Like we, just, you know, I went. I knew Vino. The only reason I knew Vino Kosla was because his photo. Was outside my office because he was one of the founders of Sun, and like, and I saw him on the Midas list and things like that. I was like, uh, and then he invited us to his office, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I go and go and talk with him. The next day, he basically sent a term sheet that says, oh, I want to invest in your company, and we're like, oh, what company? We don't have a company. Oh, funny. But uh, you know, <laughs> I was like, well, well, here's three million dollars. Do go do something cool. And I thought, wow, that is an awesome opportunity. And so I'm not going to pass that up. And so that's kind of how we got started on that side. Okay. And, and so and at that point, you had three million bucks, and you're like, what we're going to do is give cable companies the ability to deliver software into. Was it supposed to be a box that sat in your house, or was it going to be something that they manage remotely? No, this was like this was before like the kind of whole remote execution stuff was really feasible. So this was, you know, again, it was like the idea that like you would you would not actually buy your own PC; you would just like rent the PC the same way you do with like like a cable, like you do with a cable box, things like that. Okay, And that's that's the basic idea. And then you don't worry about, like they would manage it for you and they would also back it up and they would, they would also hold on to your data so like it would be really sticky so like you wouldn't, 
you know, it's like, well, now it's going to be really hard to move over because it's like, well, they, they're managing everything for me and they have like, and they, they keep track of my data and things like that. So that was the premise of it. Now, I mean, the interesting thing is like the, the PC data market didn't go that direction. But if you look, that's very much how the way that the phone market went. Because if you think about, you know, okay, well, I don't actually, you know, Often you don't buy your own phone. You're like financing it, you know, across like because I signed a two-year contract. Mm-hmm. Um, these type of things, they, you know, you can you can call them up and uh, you know you don't really think that much about updates and and downloading software. You can go to an app store and you can just like decide what you want to download. Everything is kept isolated. These type of things. So that was really our vision. Uh, around there, we just got, we we chose the wrong platform, <laughs> sure. but that was the basic idea. And they, of course, we had grand visions at the beginning. You know, that was really the background of how we got started there. And then, you know, again, it was like that was not panning out. You know, like um, you know, these type of organizations that would be able to provide that type of service were not really moving in that direction or interested in that. And so, at that point, we had a really cool technology, which was okay. I can run. You know these virtual desktop virtual machines. I can keep like it was. It was basically we have layering and other type of things. This is you know very similar to Docker and and the way that the, uh, these work. But it was for like Windows and desktop management. Um, and so we had a lot of cool technology around that side. And then you know we're kind of hunting around looking for okay, what are we going to do with this? And then the, the the Mac and the enterprise happened, and then so we got that's where we really started to get traction on the the enterprise side. And then this is when you raised your Series B. Uh, we had raised the Series B prior to that. Uh, oh, okay. I think by this time we were at we we're at a Series C. I mean, again, like we had some we had some missteps along the way. You know, this was I think when we raised our B, the story was still like that kind of computing utility, next generation computing utility, because we raised three million. Initially, that lasted us for pretty good, like uh, maybe the first two and a half, three years, I believe, something like that. And then I, I, I think our B, if I remember correctly, it was around eighteen million, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that was raised on that initial premise. Mm. Now, during that time frame, is where we found, oh, okay, actually, the real opportunity here for this type of capability. Um, is in the enterprise, and so we and then we we're riding this wave of the consumerization of IT wave. Okay, cool. So you raise this B, and then during that B is when you sort of realize, okay, maybe the move is enterprise, and we need to take this to to companies, and primarily from pool around MacBook Airs, which is amazing <laughs> as as the as the key. If you think about like you know, predicting a platform shift, you wouldn't be like, there's going to be this really thin computer that like every sales exec is going to want. And that's going to create this nightmare for, for IT orgs. But you have this solution, you're able to deliver it. What was the end user experience? It was like, was it like I was running Windows on a MacBook Air or what was the... Yeah, exactly. So we, we partnered with VMware. Uh, we leveraged, you know, on the Mac, we leveraged their VMware Fusion product. On Windows, we leveraged their player product um, and we built it. In, like they didn't see all, any of that. Like it was just basically, you know, you launch it, you uh, you have your enterprise soft, um, environment, you click go. It brings up like, you know, either a full screen or a uh, Windows environment that had all, it, it, had, it had Active Directory, it had all the corporate, it was basically your corporate desktop image. Image, but baked into a virtual machine and then wrapped up with all of these 
policies about like, yes, all the data has to be encrypted and you know all the network traffic needs to go through the VPN and you're not allowed to copy data in and out and you could remote wipe it and like all of these type of management. Uh, like basically we put, we put a management interface around it because you know again you're running on a personal device. I mean who knows like that that's probably the same device that your kids are using or you know it may have malware on it and these type of things. So this is the type of stuff that we have to do. You're installing popcorn time on it. That was that was popular. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so you you know, we got used to this um, this problem of like when we talk to an IT department, and you know, or secure or somebody in security, and they say, "Well, um, no, we're clearly like we are we are secure because our policy states that you know you can never use a personal device. There will be there are no personal devices allowed on our network." And then you like you do a network scan and you point out all these personal devices that they did had no clue about that were sitting there on their network. Or you know that if you uh, you know go and, and and survey the users and things like that, you found that no, actually, yeah, you may have these policies, but like if you look at what people are actually doing day to day, it's quite different. And so you know there's always there was this challenge and tension in terms of talking to these IT departments uh, and these security you know the people in security within enterprise around like what is actually happening within your enterprise. Because many of them, like uh, they really had no clue about what people were actually doing. So if you if you come from that angle, if you then say, let's take it as a given that people are going to want to use their own devices, to, you know, to access work things. Okay, how could you possibly secure that? And so that's where we got. We started to get. Okay, now we can have a conversation. Now we can have a conversation about what are the type of stuff that you can do. It's like, well, you know, clearly we want to be able to, you know, before the thing connects, we want to be able to make sure that you know, do a malware scan and make sure that it doesn't have any, you know, known malware on it, or you know, or, or scan for keyloggers or like these other type of um, security things. And okay, obviously, it's like if it's a personal device, I don't have all those controls over it. Like we want to make. Sure that encryption is enforced. You want to make sure that all these things are enforced. And if they're not, like I want to be able to remote wipe it, like just, you know, that container. And so we start to have a conversation along those lines of, okay, let's uh, let's talk about the way that people are actually using IT and technology within your organization. And let's talk about ways that how you can support that and not become the the CI no who like you know who's just whose job is to say no to everything it's like no if you want to be in uh, like enlightened CIO you you have to talk about oh, you know technology as a business enabler like IT as a business enabler and so like the more enlightened you know people were were moving in that direction and I think like the, the trend has been certainly in that direction now so nowadays like now like both with uh, you know people moving things to cloud and like and, the, and it's you know it's no longer about oh I need to keep everything within my walls and like and keep everything secure and security is you know trumps everything else now you have a a new generation of IT leaders who really, you know, they see their role in a really different way. And so, like, was VDI, like, was that a thing? Was that like a category at that time? It was, yeah. And so that was our main competitor, was VDI. So, like, the, in the VDI space, this is basically, basic idea is, like, you take the, all these desktops and you put them all on a server and you run them on a server. So they're easy to manage, you know, because they're just virtual machines on a server. You can patch them whenever you want. You can scan them. You can do whatever you want. But every time you wanted to use one of these, you then had to use some type of remote desktop 
protocol to uh, to connect in. And my co-founder, like uh, her husband, actually was one of the people that was originally working on this product called Sunray, which was back in the early days, this thing called Thing Clients, which is these, you know, these these really stripped down uh, machines that didn't have any storage or anything that basically just allowed remote desktop and and that's it. And so I very much did not subscribe to that model at all. You know, I thought it was like it's a bad user experience and it's really, it was just really silly. But you know, that was, uh, it was just a big thing. I mean, like VMware and Citrix, uh, Microsoft and others, like they sold a lot of people servers. <laughs> like, they, and the VDI, like that was like, you know, in terms of getting fast storage and everything in the data center, the data center people loved it because it's like, well, okay, look, like I'll, I'll take desktops too. Like, let's just put that in our data center. But it was just very impractical from, just a latency standpoint. I see this again. You know, uh, Google now has their their online gaming service where it's like, okay, we're going to play games, but I don't have to install them. It's going to be like a remote desktop thing. I remain very skeptical about these uh, these type of things because you know it makes so much sense to do things on the edge. You know, this just in terms of uh, of latency and scale and everything, and then reliance on network. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of things that make sense to do on the edge. So our most direct competitor was uh, was VDI, and we provided an alternative that had all of the centralized management of VDI, but the execution happened on the local device. So whereas a VDI server, you could maybe get you know 40 users per server, or maybe 50, or like if you give them a really bad experience, you could you could give them more uh, more users per server. For our solution, we were you know. We were able to manage 50,000, 100,000 users per server because none of the computation actually happened on the server. It was just doing policies and updates was all um, was managed on the server, but all the execution happened on the endpoint device. And that also meant you could run offline. And there were just too many use cases where it's like, well, the only, if the only way you can use your computer is like you need to have this high quality, low latency network connection. It's like, well, what about when you're on an airplane? Or you know, there's just too many cases where if you say, yeah, you cannot be productive if you don't have that high bandwidth, low latency network connection. Yeah, and so that's that's primarily how we who we competed against. Okay, so I mean, but there was multiple companies in the VDI space, right? So there was like you know, virtual desktop infrastructure was like a handful of companies. To your point, mm-hmm. and yeah. were you the only sort of like company in this, I mean, I guess VMware, like you, to your point, sort of provided some amount of this functionality, but not any of the management layer, right? They're kind of like the underlying. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the niche that we had and that we, that we ended up with. And then, you know, this was really on the, on the laptop and the desktop side. And then we saw like the, you know, the, the advent of, of iPhones and then iPads as well. And then it was a, a most similar type of story where people wanted to use this, but there was no, you know, in the early days, there was not really even MDM or anything like right. that for those on those mobile platforms. And so that's where, I mean, in that space, we, you know, we compete with uh, good technologies or any of the mobile iron or any of these other MDM providers in terms of being able to provide enterprise management on these platforms. And so you you then would bring a Windows desktop experience to an iPhone four? Uh, no, no. That, by that time, we had not. Uh, this was not like the type of stuff you do on a on a phone is really different. You know, you don't want to be pinching and zooming and stuff through a Windows desktop experience. This is more around 
people be able to have access to ready access to information and the things like email, contacts, file shares, I mean, like SharePoint or, you know, other sensitive documents and things like that. But you don't want people just to be able to download that to their iPad or their iPhone and then go and forward it to whoever or it's not encrypted or any of this. Um, and so that access was stored within a secure container on that device, like on the iPad or on the iPhone. Oh, so you delivered it like as an app? Yes, it was. This was delivered as an app, and then you have access. You have seamless access to like your corporate resources. Like you don't have you don't have to hook up a VPN to the whole device. You just had a the, uh, the VPN was baked single into app. The, yeah single app. Yeah. So you download this app. You then register. You can then you know the enterprise can say, okay, here's the resources. Here's the intranet sites that they want them to be able to access the internal web resources. Here's a single sign on capability, so I don't have to sign on to every single thing. Here's like you know documents, shares, uh, SharePoint, like these type of things, and then and then again you could set all sorts of policies about okay, do they need to authenticate? Are they allowed to print? Are they allowed to open data and copy data into other apps? You know these type of things. Interesting. Okay, where do they go from there? You raise the money, you got this out there. Yeah, you know MacBook Airs are, are all over the place. Then what's the sort of next chapter? You know, I mean, this was an enterprise, very much an enterprise company. We had a very kind of typical inside sales process there where, you know, we had very long sales cycles, especially, you know, if you think about we're doing some of the things we're doing is the desktop replacement. I mean, like there are companies that were saying, you know, we want to move for this model of, you know, the company owns the the laptops and like, well, you'll get a company provision laptop and we'll, we'll refresh those every three or four years. And they wanted to move to like, you know, using a personal device, especially for things like contractors or people working from home or like, you know, in certain industries, oil and gas was big um, in the legal space and like, you know, places where there were certain regulations and that's where you had the biggest uptick, um, you know, the, the, the biggest interest, you know, in terms of uh, those type of verticals. But it was very, you know, we had our enterprise sales team the sales cycles were, I mean, enterprise sales cycles are already long. These are even longer because they're often tied to a hardware refresh. And so even if we get people, somebody excited in terms of the rollout, it's like, well, okay, as we start, we're not going to like take people and like move them off from their current laptop into this. It's like when their laptop ages out, instead of like replacing it with, you know, another Windows laptop, it's like, oh, you'll get the option of choosing a Mac. And, you know, so it, there's a lot of different models. They had even BYOD, where it's like the people could, would even just get the device and own it. There was also like CYOD, which is like they could choose their own device. Like they had a, a menu of stuff, so it was still owned by the, the company, but like you now have the option to choose a Mac or, you know, other types of uh, hardware as well. So like we, but many of the, the things that we're doing, they were t- because they were tied with the hardware refresh cycles, these things were really, really long and it's very lumpy. It was very, you know, it's like hunting elephants. Like you go and like you will we'll be able to deal with these big deals, you know, um, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars deals, but uh, like they took a long, long time to close and even longer time to deploy. And so, like, they, it was uh, like there was a there was a lot of uh, ups and downs. Where it was like, well, whether we're going to make this quarter or not is going to depend on whether this PO comes in, you know, on March thirtieth or April first. And we continuously had a lot of challenges um, along those lines. And you know, I think this is true of any any enterprise company, any any company that is selling into the enterprise. But it was especially true. At Mocha Five, because of the the nature of what we're doing, we're often tied to hardware refresh cycles, which would stri- uh, stretch out things even further. Cool. And so, 
sounds like maybe the, the it wasn't growing as fast as you wanted it to grow. And so what sort of was the conclusion there? So eventually, like I like I mentioned, we had like a number of 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 missteps. We had gone through four CEOs, I believe, and this was like coming up to close to ten years. And you know, we had we had some cool technology. We had like earlier on in the company, we had some very strong interests around like oh potential acquisition and these type of things. You know, again, like the the board was not interested in that. Like they were very interested in like they wanted the the big outcome, right? Sure. Um, they didn't want they didn't want the you know the the two x or three x return. They wanted the you know fifty x one hundred x return. So I believe. Um, I'll have to look back. I think it was, you know, maybe like from start to finish, I think we raised around $83 million, you know, from uh, like through the course of the company. I'm not sure what series we uh, we ended up with. But like, you know, again, there was, uh, we had raised quite a bit of money by that point in time. And then, you know, basically what, it, what had happened like towards the end was like, we, we had some very strong interest. Some things happened like, on, my, on my personal life, on my personal side where, I was not able to to work after that point, and then the rest of the exec team at that point was like, "Well, okay, like they were out as well." And so then it was largely like a fire sale at that point. Um, you know, it was not. I mean, there was it did eventually get picked up and acquired, but it was not the outcome that any of us had been wanting. You know, sure. especially thinking around uh, thinking around ten years in. Yeah, and so you know, I mean, and a lot of this uh, you can you know. Learn, but learned a ton of lessons through that whole experience, which are very valuable in the in the next company. And we approach things in a very different way at Unified E, and it, it's definitely paid off. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is it's a great time to kind of talk about you know what is Unified E like, and what's the backstory, and then let's let's dive into that a little bit as well. Yeah. So um, so Unified E. So we do something called implicit authentication. We can authenticate users based on passive factors. Things that about their behavior or about their environment that are unique to them, but don't require any conscious user action. They can just be themselves, and there's enough that's unique about them that we can actually use that for authentication in many in many cases. And so this was really driven by again like experience at Mocha Five and seeing all of these cases where you know if you try to implement security without taking the end user experience into account. Then you're going to run into all sorts of problems. It either won't be adopted, or, or you know, even worse, people will use it and be miserable, right? And this was especially true around authentication uh, technologies. You, I mean, you look at things like you know, there's passwords, and then like the predominant method at that point was we have passwords and we have these password complexity rules, and we also have rules around oh, you have to change your password every so often, and you're not allowed to reuse old passwords, and just a lot of frustration on that side, especially because people are starting now getting used to interacting with more and more services. And so now they have to like manage more and more passwords. So there was that. There was also like the view that passwords are not a great solution in the first place. I mean, the whole notion of the password is I have a secret and I tell you that secret and that's how you know that it's me. And of course, that leaves it open to things like phishing. Like if they can somehow trick you into entering your password in some of the wrong the wrong place, I can figure out what it is, or key logging, or screen scraping, or like these those type of attacks. It also it opens yourself up to you know I'll reuse the same passwords on multiple services, and then now if one of them gets breached, then I may not even know about it, 
but it's still get uh, they get compromised on that point, right? So you know, passwords alone were clearly that this was not uh, this was not scaling, and it was not uh, that was not working. And then, but the existing two FA solutions were not very good. I mean, you look at things like the physical tokens, like a RSA security, which admittedly add a lot of security and a very secure solution. You know, this notion that I have to carry something extra around and then have to type in this code before it expires, things like that. This was not, you know, if you look at the actual adoption of 2FA, you know, of, of that style of 2FA, it's very, very low. And, you know, people hated it. Like they did not want to use it. So in some cases, there was mandated, you must use it. And so people just, they, they dealt with it, but nobody liked it. And then you looked at other, you know, because those things were so inconvenient, those physical tokens, they then moved to soft tokens, which is basically an app on your phone that like holds a secret. And then you can then, it's much the same thing. You can then type in your code, um, you know, based on your app. And then that was a realization that, okay, well, people don't want to carry something extra around. So I'm going to just do this on the, I'm going to make a soft token, a software version of the token and do that um, just on the phone. Like the security is quite a bit lower in these cases, especially. I mean, if your phone is jailbroken or any of these, like there's not there's not really great ways to uh, to keep those things secure, and so you do lose some of the security there. But the convenience uh, ends up trumping that. But then, like this, like this is silly. Like if you just think about this idea of I have my phone in my hand and it's you know displaying a code, and I'm sitting at my computer, and then for some reason I need to. Type in that code under my keyboard when the two devices are sitting right next to each other. Like you're just introducing friction. Like things should not work this way. And so, like the, with this realization, um, you know, I mean, at, at, at Mocha Five, one of our big customers was Royal Dutch Shell, and they had a, they they were very uh, forward thinking. They were thinking around authentication and you know how to deal with identity. And they have a huge, huge, massive organization. I think they were. Global One, or like at that at the time, they were basically the the, the largest uh, you know company in the world for for some period of time there, and they had a system where everyone used uh, smart cards and pins. Like nobody knew what their password was. Um, they didn't use passwords. They used a smart card and a pin. And if you wanted to authenticate, you plug in your smart card and type in your pin, which is actually a very good solution uh, from the security standpoint. But then they ran into very practical matters of well, okay. I want to authenticate on my phone, but I can't plug my smart card into my phone. Like, what am I going to do? And so, like again, like all of this, uh, like it's 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 in this environment that like that we started to come from the other direction. It's like, well, how far could you go if you don't require the user to do anything? Because that's the hard part of security is actually changing human behavior. And so that's the that's the approach that we took. So we we had talked about VDI, and uh, me and my co-founder we, we went to a security conference uh, where we did this demo, which was attack basically as an attack against VDI. Where uh, what we did is we we built this tool that that had a took a Wireshark trace of the network traffic between the client and the server for VMware and Citrix and Microsoft, and a, you know a set of these type of remote desktop like VDI solutions. And of course, they encrypted all the traffic, which is nice. But we didn't look at the content of the, of the packet. We just look at the timing between the packets, and then based on that, we could determine the timing of the user's keystrokes on the t- on their terminal. And then based on that, we could actually determine what the user was typing. Because you can think as you're moving your fingers around the keyboard, there's slightly different timings depending on like which keys you're touching. And if you combine that with a language model, you can actually build something that. Can predict like what somebody is typing, and so we had this awesome demo where 
you know, you you type something across this encrypted channel, you drop the this Wireshark trace in this tool, and it would say, "Here's what I thought you typed." And people were really blown away by this because they had been sold, you know, this VDI solution says everything is secure, it's all in your data center, but like little did they know that this was, uh, you know, they just opened themselves up to this side channel attack, and then you know that where you could pick up keystroke timings and then figure out what people are typing. And so that's really how we got started on this technology. This again, this is kind of a connection back to Stanford and my PhD days. There was uh, Dan Benet, who's a professor there at Stanford. He had done a lot of work in these type of side channel attacks and these type of things, very aware of that work. There was another person there when I was doing my PhD that was looking at something called keystroke dynamics that was, you know, looking at how somebody types and then using that for uh, for identity and identity verification, authentication. And so we begin to explore things in these areas just kind of as a side project. You know, it turns out like, yeah, if what you just because you were back, you were back at Stanford teaching at that point or what was um, I was teaching at that point. But this was, you know, if you think about the kind of the evolution of the company at, at, at Mocha 5, you know, so I was a CTO and like initially there's a lot of technology work, you know, as in the later stages of the company, it was much more about, okay, Sales, sales execution, you know, getting people deployed, these type of things. There's less of that kind of core technology work, and so I was still in, I was still involved there. But this is why also I went back to the Stanford and start to start to teach, and then I was you know start to do some side projects there as well. And so this was one of the side projects that you know initially it started as a demo that we had put together for you know as a demo of attack on VDI. But then you know one of the challenges that we had in that was actually. It would work really well for me because it was like the system was trained on me. But like if somebody else tried it, it would not uh, not work as well because they typed in a different way. And so you know, it was kind of in this uh, that that type of environment. That's where the the, the idea and the genesis of that was born. And, and and so we began to look at these, you know, uh, things like keystrokes. As what we found is, you type around three sentences, we could then tell pretty accurately whether it's you or not. Like once you've typed around three sentences, we looked at trackpad usage. It turned out it turns out like the way that people scroll on their trackpad is really unique to them. Like, you know, in terms of what part of the trackpad they're touching, what is the arc and the angle and the pressure they're using, things like that. And so there's a lot of promising things there. And then we uh, then we looked on the phone because that like we saw like a big big opportunity on the phone. And like there's a wealth of sensors on the phone, and that's really what what unlocked it in terms of you know using that sensor data from the phone. You know things like the accelerometer and gyroscope, and you know your location and these other factors. And you come and each of them individually, they they had you know they had their own false positives. You didn't always get signal from them, but if you combined a large number of these together, then you could get something that was very highly accurate. And so that's that's really how we got started at UnifyD. Okay, interesting. So again, had university roots and sort of some from some work and things you were doing at the university, right? Yeah, that's right. In terms of commercializing any of these projects that come out of a university, is there like anything special you're doing or working with university on? Or is it all sort of like Stanford is great about just letting these technologies come out and become companies. No, uh, so w- when I was at Stanford as a PhD student, like I was doing research under like under Stanford under these grants. When I went back and became a lecturer, I was just like I was basically a hired gun 
where they needed somebody to teach uh, some of the classes. And so I had background in that area. And so this was, again, this was like the, the compilers class. I went back to teach the compilers class because that was um, that was really my, my research area. And then, you know, the interesting thing is like they, the way that they do it is like you're there literally as a hired gun. Like you're there, I'm employed for the quarter. And then as the quarter finishes, then like I'm no longer employed. And then the next year they employ me again. And then, and then I'm no longer employed. So there's... Um, like I was not, I was actually, I think my title is visiting lecturer. And so I was not really the full-time employee of the university at that point, but I, I, I still had many of these connections there and, and talked with many of the people, including Dan Bonet, for example, he was, he was an advisor at our, at our first company, Mocha 5. He's also an advisor here at Unify ID um, as well. And so I uh, was aware of those things and, and, and and worked on them, but like in the case of like the stuff we're doing Unified ID, that was very much a separate side project that we were working on that was informed by those things. But back to your original question around for Mogafi, for example, or anything that comes out of university, there's a technology licensing office because they, any work that you do at Stanford, like like using Stanford resources, it's owned by Stanford. Like they, I mean, because they they're paying. I mean, they pay for those graduate student stipends. You know, they pay. Um, you know, they they they're providing those resources. So, and there's a technology licensing office, and this is true at Stanford and Berkeley at MIT and just about every other um, school. Where um, if you want to build a company based on something in a university, you have to interact with that technology licensing office. And so the way the model typically works is, I mean, obviously, they, like Stanford and others, like they want these things to get out in the world and they want them to become something big. I mean, you think about things like Google, for example, which was based on research at Stanford, and then they they spun it off into a, a company and a big company. And so usually the way that they they'll do it is they say, okay, well we'll negotiate, we'll give you an exclusive license. To the IP that you developed here, and in exchange for that, you will we'll get some equity in your company, and there'll be some set of like escalating payments that'll happen. Like initially, it's going to be really cheap. Maybe it's like you pay a thousand dollars for your exclusive license to all of this tech, but then that kind of ramps that that will start to ramp up over time. And so that's the way that they'll typically um, set up these type of deals because they want it to be, and they want it to be a win-win. I mean, they want to, uh, they want people to go off and spin off companies based on this research, but they want to have a piece of that as well. And so I think Stanford's done this very successfully, you know, and they uh, they have a very good uh, technology licensing office that negotiates these type of deals, and so that the the university can see the upside there as well. And so then the, the often, yeah, they'll get they'll get equity, like the university. Will get equity in in your startup in the company, and then then in exchange for an exclusive license. Now, if you don't care about the exclusive license, then they are welcome to go and take that technology and then you know license it to whomever. But of course, like they would much rather license it to somebody who was the one who did the work, who is most likely you know to uh, to succeed with it, and that's that will typically be the the people who are initially involved. Oh, interesting. Okay, so there's also other technologies that. Like anyone can try to go license. And- that's right. Yeah, I mean, so if, if you have something, if if they have something that's commercially viable um, that was developed, you know, as part of university, then that's part of the job of the technology licensing office is to monetize that in appropriate ways. And so part of that is 
in terms of you know talking with various companies. And then this is this is most common when you have some concrete artifact that you know, like a patent, for example. If like if if you file the patent like based on some of the work you've done at Stanford. Then the you know Stanford will then license that patent you know so you can have those IP protections. The other very common thing is code. So like you know if you if you're working on something that's a research project within a university setting and you want to spin that off into a company, you can't go just take that code and start a company because that that code like that IP is actually owned by the university, and so you have to ha- work out a deal to license that. You know even if you're not using that much of the code or anything like that, like you know many times that's like the fr- you know the first initial version is like the version that you built like at the university using university resources and then so the, in these cases they um, you know you do need to license that code from the, the technology licensing office oh interesting and, and so a lot of that code that's happening there actually isn't open source it's like well it can be open source but then if you want to it has a you know, uh, it, the license yeah. on it the open source license isn't like uh, Apache Two or something. Yeah, I mean, so this is this is a case where okay, if you want to like have proprietary access to that code, I mean, that's that is one way that people do it is like you have a university project, you make that open source, then you can go out into industry, and then you can use that the same as anyone else could use that, and that's fine. But if you want to have, if you want, if you have start to build proprietary code that you don't want to be open source, or you know these type of techniques and stuff that were not open source, and you want to maintain them to not be open source. Um, then you need to license that from the uh, the university, and I think this is also in particular. This is not a little bit different for like undergrads, for example. Like, you know, if you're an undergrad in a university, you're not getting support from the uh, university in terms of like a research grant or these type of things. The rules are a little bit different in those type of cases versus like if you're a grad student and you know they are. Paying you as a research assistant, or those type of things, and the, like when you're doing that, ostensibly like that IP that you generate is owned by the university in those cases, and so and again, like they're not evil people; like they want this stuff to get out, and so they want to facilitate that, and so they're not going to be difficult in terms of being, you know, they they strive to be really easy to work with and actually encourage people to go out and start companies but most commonly they'll you know they'll take some slice of equity based on that and then ex- in exchange for that you get the exclusive license Oh, interesting. And any range of equity they take is it like five percent, two percent? What's the? I think it really, really varies. I mean, I think it's this is again they don't want to have a situation where they are you know holding your company back in any way. So this is like in the kind of single digit percentages is is the most typical. I think. Cool. You know, that's one or two percent, or like these type of things, and then you know, which I mean, I think that again, they want to be easy to work with, but they do want to be able to see some of the upside if one of these things, you know, like Google or others, like go and become really successful. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I didn't, I don't know much about that that world, so that's pretty interesting. Okay, so back to Unify ID. So you you kind of built this little hack to to basically prove that VDI is insecure, probably because you're still. You know, fighting that war, and then you realize it has some additional, like that that hack has some some interesting implications. Is that is that sort of what what happened next? That's right. Yeah, and then begin to think. Just again, it's like a this this side project that that. 
that was working on uh, you know, just looking at you know okay what are the other sources of these like signals that you you have that's precisely right yeah and so look at these other signals and then you know put together some uh, you know I was uh, machine learning was becoming a thing again <laughs> at that point this is around 2014 2015 time frame like I had some uh, some background in that like I had one chapter of my thesis was uh, had something around uh, machine learning and then when I was there at Stanford I had I had taken a class with Andrew Ng and then he had consulted with me a little bit on some papers and stuff I was writing so this was I was familiar with these techniques and then um, and began and applied some of these techniques to this problem and then found oh actually there's uh, you can go a long way uh, in terms of um, being able to identify and authenticate the user like the human being without requiring them to do any conscious action and so when we thought about like what is the shape of the solution in the future you you know, we knew it was not going to be passwords. We knew that you know it's not going to be something extra that you have to carry around. And honestly, anything that required the user to change their behavior would be a very hard sell. Like it would be that's that's the hardest part of of security is actually changing uh, changing human behavior. So you know, if we thought about what is the shape of the solution in the future, we thought, okay, well, it's it's going to be passive. It's going to be continuous. It's going to be something that users ideally would not have to even think about and do. And it'd be and it'd be much more natural. It'd just be much more natural interactions. You know, the same way that you or I would talk. You know, it's like, how do I know that? You know that you are actually Grant Miller. Well, it's like, well, we met before, and I recognize your voice, and like that's how I know that that you are who you say you are. And you know, we thought that technology, you know, in terms of authentication, technology was going to move in the same direction, where many of these interactions, which you know, it's like, okay, I have this physical, key, you know, token that I need to plug in, or I need to type in this code for, or I need to remember this password, or these security questions, or these type of things. Like you thought, like many in the future, you know, it's going to be much more like you'd see in the kind of like some sci-fi movies, things like that, where it's like you're going to have a voice interface. You're going to um, these type of things are going to be much more natural and just much more uh, continuous and just happening all the time. And so that uh, that's like that's the model like the, that we knew like things are going to move that way in the future. And so that's that's just really how we started building the the technology around that side. Cool, and then. I think you you maybe launched it at RSA or something. Yeah, so we were in stealth for a long time. We actually launched at TechCrunch Disrupt, like on stage. Nice. Yeah, this was in San Francisco, where we honestly at that point we had no clue what people were going to think of this because we think are people going to are going to creeped out by this? Are going to think this is Big Brother? Is this is like how are people going to react? And we had a really like surprisingly positive reaction. You know, there was some, there's probably like 5% or so that was like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is crazy. And, you know, what about privacy and like these type of things? But we had 95% of the people were, so you're telling me that you're going to track everything I do, you're going to track my location and the movement, all of this, and I don't need to remember passwords. Sign me up because <laughs> that's the world that I want to live in, and because there was so much frustration around that uh, things on that problem uh, on that side. Also, I think attitudes around these things have have really evolved. I mean, if you think about just think about you know Amazon Echo like Alexa, right? And so, let's say in two thousand five, you had said you know you're going to have a microphone in your house so that Amazon can listen to everything you say, you know, so you could you know talk to Amazon and order order toilet paper or 
you know, ask what the weather is or whatever. And they'll be listening all the time. And like, that is like literally straight out of 1984. That is like, you know, the people would think you were crazy. And now, now that's one of the top selling products on Amazon. And again, it's because people see the value in it and like, and their, their, their attitudes around these things are evolving. And so, you know, I think that people care about privacy and they care about security, but they also care about convenience. And if you can provide, you know, some amount of extra convenience or value to the end user, then people are often willing to, you know, to share more information or to, you know, the, use these type of systems. The other thing that happened, I think, is that technology and machine learning had reached uh, like reached a point where things that used to be sci-fi were now actually they people see these in real life I mean stuff like you know a, autonomous vehicle like a self-driving car and so like the fact that a car can can drive itself I mean like you know they that and people were accepting of you know of that type of technology or understand like that type of technology existed, like you know when we came along and then say yeah we can identify you based on your gait and based on like you know, the way you operate you know you touch a screen and things like that. This was not you know so far fetched that people actually believed it and they believed it was possible and so that was certainly a contributing factor. The other aspect was around the security problem. The fact that the security problem had gotten so bad. Passwords, people hate passwords so much. And all of those, the security questions and, and 2FA and everything, I think there was a general understanding and consensus that this was not the way of the future. Like, this was not the way that things were going to be in the future. There was a question mark in people's minds about, okay, what is it? Like, what is it going to be? What is my, how am I going to do identity and authentication in the future? But it was clearly like not going to be passwords or passwords plus 2FA codes or, you know, these type of things. Um, and so there was, there was definitely an appetite for, for this type of approach. So, the, well, there's a couple different ways that you could take that to market though, right? So you could try to take this to companies so they can replace their passwords for their consumer service with this new way to identify consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can take it to companies and say like, hey, stop handing out you know, RSA tokens and start using more of this context to help people you know, authenticate into uh, your corporate network. Which approach did you decide to take? Well, I mean, again, like we kind of we we went through multiple iterations of this. When we first got started, I, I mentioned like we were at, at, at TechCrunch Disrupt. Um, we also we we had RSA Innovation Sandbox, and um, that's I think we're the we're the first ever and still only ever unanimous winner uh, there. And then South by Southwest and like a handful of others as well. Like our initial approach though was basically as like a souped up password manager. So like we had a Chrome extension, we had a browser extension and a mobile app that individuals could go and like they could they could download. We had a beta, like a private beta that people sign up for. And then we basically manage all their passwords and credentials, but we just hide all of that stuff. So like you go to a website, you go to Amazon, whatever, like it wouldn't even show you or ask you for your password. It would just be used to re- replace this by this button that just like log in using Unify ID. You'd click that. And then in the background, it would actually be talking username and password with a with a backend. But we had to kind of wrap our te- our authentication technology around that. Now that approach is very hard because we needed a lot of data to uh, to improve our our technology and to you know, really drive that machine learning algorithms. And 
it's a hard slog, like in terms of you know the user growth on that on the consumer side. Like sort of like yeah, maybe you can get you know we had a big splash at TechCrunch. We got ten thousand people to sign up and download our app and all of this. But then you know in terms of you want to talk about growth there, and you know it's like we needed we needed millions of users uh, to be able to get the type of data uh, that we needed. And you know, we look at that growth path as like, well, you got to fight tooth and nail just to like to get your, you know, to get ten thousand, and then the, you know, the next week, if you need to double that, then it's you need to do all of that work plus more. And again, like end users don't care that much about security. It was like a little bit of a hard slog. You look at like, you know, people like LastPass, One Password, and others as well. They had been at it for a long time. You know, still did not have great penetration. You know, like the the number of people who use password managers. Not very high. There's also not the market that we wanted to be associated with in any case. And so we then shifted, and it was really, I was like, oh, well, how can we get more users and more data? It's like, oh, well, then again, it was like we started to get approached by organizations that had challenges around this, and they already had millions of users, they already had millions of end users. So we can give you an SDK, you can link into your app, and then we can uh, we can scale up much more quickly, and so that's really what uh, what our approach was um, this time. Was I mean we bootstrapped a bit with that with those kind of beta users, you know, just individuals with our Chrome extension and our and our uh, mobile app, and then we quickly then moved to an SDK that you can link into other apps and then provide that that service. And then again, like we we had a choice is like, do we want to go after you know, within the enterprise, like, you know, um, trying to displace, you know, existing authentication mechanisms within a company, or do we want to go more of a B2B2C route where, where we are authenticating, you know, our customers' ultimate end users. And so we did the latter. So like we, we focus on the latter. So we made that SDK so that, you know, for example, we work with, you know, a bank or, you know, and in in, integrate into their banking app. And so then, uh, you know, providing extra levels of authentication, uh, you know, for their ultimate end users, and the thing that really drove us there was number one was the, our need for data. And so, if we, you know, even if we have a large deployment within an enterprise, I mean, that's like a hundred thousand people, you know, at, at most. I mean, like even large enterprises, they're like you know, on the order of hundreds of thousands of people. Whereas, I mean, if you you talk to um, you know other services, then that goes into the millions and tens of millions, and so that's uh, that's one direction. And this is kind of this aligns with like the long term strategic direction of the company. You know, in terms of we're trying to build this next generation identity platform that's not based on passwords, but based on these other behavioral factors, and then get like a large enough portion of the population onto that platform. And so this is you know like the. the there was a route like within the enterprise. The other thing is there are established players there with very aggressive sales forces that you know that were executing extremely well. I mean, I, I'll point to Duo for example. I mean, Duo they they got acquired for three plus billion dollars. You know, they didn't really have that much technology. They basically had a little. They had an app and they had like you know something that was slightly better than you know RSA and that RSA security and soft token. But there was no real technology like uh, there. But they executed extremely well um, on the enterprise sales side and they got uh, they got a lot of great deals um, and they they ate a lot of market share from RSA they you know like do greenfield opportunities of people wanting to you know saying like passwords are not secure you need to do 2FA and then they were there they had the you know just the right solution and positioned in the right way and so us as a tiny startup at this point you know we're we're 10 people it's like that was not the market that we wanted to go and compete against because I 
because I knew what that market would look like. That would be big inside sales team, you know, kind of trying to to, to land these type of uh, these type of accounts for internal usage, and then really going head to head against um, not it was not just Duo. There's a whole set of um, that companies that really go after that space, and so that was another reason why we shied away from doing that kind of within the enterprise, you know, authenticating employees and contractors. Got it. Okay. So then doing the B2B2C side, was the idea that end customers opt into this or that it's more like a fraud prevention kind of technology? So this is really the the two biggest areas of our business. I mean, one is around streamlining authentication. And so that that is like eliminating passwords, like going passwordless, because you know both from the user experience point of view as well as the you know the security point of view, you know there's a lot of organizations that want to move to passwordless, but they're not sure how to get there. Um, and so then we we provide a very nice solution, either for passwordless or for you know displacing kind of existing two FA. You know, so it's a supplement to the password. So you still have your password, but instead of doing like I type in the six-digit code or I SMS and text you this code, then um, you know we're able to use it, do this in a much more, a much more seamless way. And so in these cases, we most often work with you know product owners and ones that you know they care a lot about user experience. They want to kind of move to that next generation experience. Another one is call centers or contact centers. You know, cases where there's a lot of friction involved in the authentication process, as well as it being a vector for uh, for attack, and then so providing more seamless authentication in those type of contexts, as well as physical world, like you know things like um, for smart locks and and doors and automobiles, like cars, um, travel, like these type of uh, these type of things as well. And so that's that's one area. The other area is really around working closely with the risk and fraud teams. And so in these cases, this is more like they're already ingesting a lot of different signals, you know, around risk and fraud. You know, what devices is coming from. What is the IP address? What are the previous purchases? As per, you know, this account is made. What is the velocity on this account? Like in a more general sense, like in terms of correlating with other providers. Like have I, have I seen somebody with this, this identity trying to open up accounts at ten different organizations? Okay, that's now risky. Or has this has this, these credentials been part of a data breach? Or like using a lot of these different signals, and then then we just provide additional signals, a different additional context, and we provide a lot of value there because like the type of things that we look at are really different and orthogonal to many of the other aspects that they look at. And so they uh, they, they find a lot of value, not only in terms of finding new cases of fraud, but also in, in, in terms of in terms of reducing false positive rates, where it's actually legitimately users and maybe is legitimately the correct user, but it may be like, you know, the, there may be other things that flag that make it look like a risky transaction, but we're going to say, no, nope, actually, this was the correct person because of all this, you know, this biometrics match and everything like that. So in those cases, then we work much more closely with those teams. And then instead of just being an authentication result that's like yes or no or inconclusive, then we, we provide a lot more color around uh, what was actually happening and the user was doing. And so in those cases, that's more like, you know, the, in the risk and frauds case, then it's more like this is kind of just sitting in the background looking at behavior and then providing those additional signals. And then the type of stuff that we do that already fits in Typically, already fits in with uh, you know the the end user agreements that they that they already have in place because they're often using things like IP address and location and and other types of data for these type of things as well. So right now you're going to market with both use cases or primarily with one or the other. We do have some on the risk and fraud side. Most of our business is actually 
on the streamlining authentication side. Okay. And so going back to like, you know, w- with the company, we got, st- we started with a great, with a grand vision and like, this is the way that we're going to, we're going to, you know, reinvent authentication for, for everyone, all these different use cases, you know, and then we had a technology and a very cool technology. Like we have a, our gate analysis is very sophisticated. If you, if you walk, you know, for even a short distance, uh, we can, identify you with the same accuracy as a physical fingerprint. So about a 1 in 50,000 false positive rate. Um, that's where the, the state of the technology is for, for gate today um, with our solution. And that's just by having a phone in your pocket and walking with it for that's right. 30 yeah. steps or how many steps? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, not, not many steps, around uh, 5 to 10 seconds. And then we can then, we, we then have enough to, that your, it turns out your movement and your gait is unique enough that, that we're able to then, uh, uh, hit that level of accuracy. And this is all this is all proven out with lots of real world data. We had, I believe, the latest number, 35 million devices that have like run our SDK that we've you know collected this type of motion data for. And then we've we've uh, used that to train machine learning models and validate them. So this is all uh, you know this is based on on real world uh, usage as well. But that is uh, like there are a sets of customers that are you know really the early adopters that are very interested in that. In that area, but then you know, part of the struggle that we have is like we, we don't want to just be working with innovation teams and like you know the kind of people on the future products. We want to we want to have people deploy you know and and solve problems for them uh, immediately and like and burning problems. So we also basically we we introduced what we view as like a stepping stone to that kind of eventual future where, yeah, there's no more passwords and like, you know, this, all this authentication happens in a much more seamless way. And we had, uh, implemented a push to auth capability. So this is uh, basically, you know, if you want, when you want to perform some action, you want to log into a website, for example, you know, instead of asking for your password or in addition to asking your password, you can, you get a, you know, you get a notification on your phone that says, Hey, okay. You know, um, you know, somebody's trying to, Log in, or somebody is trying to like perform this action. Do I want to approve it, or is saying like that's not me? And so then we have a, a mechanism within there to you know. So we design it in a with an eye towards security in terms of doing this in a much more secure way than these type of OTP you know solutions or you know the SMS or the uh, like these type of solutions, which are like that's the current status quo is that most people implement SMS. SMS is uh, is not an authentication protocol. I mean and NIST and the FBI and, and everyone has come out and said this is deprecated. Do not use SMS for two-factor authentication because of lots of problems around the, the protocol itself. The SS7 and the the communication protocol there is not it's not authenticated. It's not secure. It's not encrypted at all. And not only that, but then they, there's a big problem with SIM porting, where you know all you need to do is you just need to convince Verizon or AT and T or whoever it is that oh I I lost my phone, can you can you port my number to this new this new SIM or this new device, or even you know hey I was a Verizon customer now I want to be an AT and T customer, can you port my number over? And the, like the things that they use to authenticate these um, these transactions is very weak. I mean, they ask you things like what's your address, you know, what's your mother's maiden name, or what's your social security number. All of these things that are really um, very easy to to social engineer and and to hack. And so this is this even happened pretty recently. There was uh, Jack Dorsey, who is the the CEO of, of Twitter. Right, right. He got his Twitter account taken over. Because somebody went into you know the, the the store with a fake ID that said Jack Dorsey, and ported his number 
to a new phone and then reset his credentials and then logged in as him and then you know po- tweeted a bunch of stuff. So like in that like you know look if, if this could happen to Jack Dorsey it can really happen to uh, uh, to anyone and it does. I mean like this is what we hear from customers is they are now experiencing wide scale attacks on SMS as as a as a second factor. I mean like the the most typical is like you know you'll get a phone call that appears to be from your bank you answer it, and they say, "Oh, hello. I'm from you know the so-and-so bank fraud department. Uh, we've noticed some suspicious activity in your account. But first, we need to verify your identity. I just sent you a six-digit code. Can you read it off to me?" And of course, like you know, the the person reads off the code, and then you know maybe they'll the hacker will then log into the using that code to re- reset the credentials. Log into the account. They can then read off legitimate transactions. So at that point, you know, if you had any. Any skepticism before you're no longer skeptical because, like, well, how could they have possibly known I did these transactions unless they're actually work at the bank, right? And then you know, then they'll say something like, "Oh, well, you know, like, we've noticed this fraud on your account. We need to close out your account and then set up a new one." And so, but we'll take care of all of that for you. But you know, we'll we'll need to transfer all your the, the money in your account over the over to the new account and so and say, oh, "Okay, thank you very much," you know. And then, of course, later on, if you get you, you get some notification that says, "Oh, like." Big withdrawal, like transfer, like money being transferred, and you're like, oh, of course. I mean, yeah, they they, they called, they told, they told me like that was going to happen, right? And so these used to be sophisticated attacks, no longer. I mean, now like to spoof a caller ID, like anyone can go to any number of services, and that part is trivial, and the rest of it is just you know, it's just a little bit of social engineering. Um, these are really costly attacks, and so again, it's because the, that SMS protocol and like using a phone number as as authentication is just really fundamentally broken. And so this is, and if 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 people don't take anything else from this podcast, just take one thing, which is do not use SMS for for two factor auth. I, I know that there's a lot of organizations that currently use it. It is being deprecated, and you know. It wasn't best practice three years ago. It's still, especially now, not best practice. And so, if you're on it, like take a serious look at moving off. If you're implementing something new, do not implement SMS uh, because that protocol um, and technique is just fundamentally broken. So, just related to that, we so we introduced a push to auth service that, like, if you log in, then you'll get a notification and you'll get all the context around it. It's much more secure. It's a much better user experience, and it's much cheaper. Like we price it very competitively compared to SMS. And so that's actually where we're seeing a lot of uptake now, partially because like we're riding this wave of, okay, people want to do 2FA, but they don't want to implement SMS because like, you know, they know it's insecure and people don't, um, you know, if you're going to do an implementation, you don't want to do the thing that is deprecated. You don't want to do something newer. And then, you know, this really competes directly with with Duo and with a number of other uh, of these type of like push to authenticate solutions, and then and then we we end up dif- differentiating in terms of well we st- we have the all the behavioral pieces on top of that as well. So even if they're not ready at this point to fully embrace like a full behavioral authentication, they at the very least can just get started with like a much better you know something that is much more secure a better user experience and much cheaper than uh, than SMS. And so that was a relatively recent shift for our, our company and then that's um, and we're seeing a lot of uptake on that side. Oh interesting. So this is actually like an interesting lesson which is like oftentimes the market is not ready for your like grand future vision of the world, right? And like it, they're just not going to adopt it nearly as fast. And so having 
a product or a go-to-market or solution that's sort of like the interim step before you get to there, but it's going to like people can sort of lead down the path and eventually like, okay, like this other data, like we already, we've been doing that for years. Like now you can bring that all in as well. Yeah. And I think this is in just in general, any case where you are, we develop something with, this is a new capability. It's like a new, it's something that people don't really go and search for, you know, this kind of you know, behavioral biometric authentication, things like that. Because they, they don't even know it exists. I mean, like, like you know, the, the the whole idea of like you I can authenticate based on motion and gait and like location of these type of things. Like we as a tiny startup, we could either go and educate the whole world on this and like try to push everyone in this direction. You know, we, we strongly believe like things are gonna move in that. And like the the people that we do engage with, like, you know, we can talk passionately about it. We can try to get them to um, to see the world in the same way. But you know that's you know again it was like they, there's a lot of challenges in, in in following that type of approach and I think it's important to you know when you do engage with a you know a customer engage with a vendor they do know like there is that long term vision and they and they believe in it and all of this but you know it, it also introduced a lot of risk it introduced a lot of complexity I mean so then you know if you think about what is the sales process for us like if we're selling this behavioral biometric solution it was like well first of all they have to believe that it works. Right. Okay. This is not, and because it's not widely deployed and everything, you know, you have to get over that skepticism. And then you have to say, okay, what about GDPR and CCPA and privacy? And then we have good answers for each of these. It's like, oh, all the, the raw data stays on the local device. And like, we don't, we don't collect any PII and like all of this. We have answers to all of those. But again, it's like, this is making the sale much more complex, right? And that not to mention that even in the first place, it's not like many organizations have this. We have a budgeted project to go and do behavioral authentication. There are some. There are like the the, the future-looking ones, the ones that are you know really want to be on the cutting edge. They do, they do, and so we engage with those customers. But if you're talking about not the early adopters, but the like the the bulk of the market, that's the area where you have to build a solution that is. Really brain dead simple. The value prop is blatantly obvious, like it's smack you in the face, like it's so obvious. They already are spending money on it, or like they already have a project to do it. Like you don't have to go and convince them to create a new new project or new budget for this. It already fits in with something uh, that they're already gonna do. And yes, there's competitors in that space, but like maybe the competitors are not servicing it uh, well enough, or you know, they're there's some angle that you can that you can take, you know, in terms of yes, this is uh, this is much more secure and it's better user experience and it's much cheaper. And then so you know you, you kind of you want to make it a, as easy as possible for a company to do business with you. And so it's very much along those lines, you know, and like you can and you can maintain that grand vision and and like that product differentiation and everything, but you need to have an offering that that is very very easy for customers to adopt and use. Yeah. I mean, part of it's like part of the demo is is the wow, right? So if you can do the same stuff that somebody else is doing, but you add this wow factor in that people are like, wow, that's really amazing. Even if they don't end up using it right away, or it's like you know, it becomes if it gets the demo exciting, like it makes them want to watch and and, and get more people involved, it can be really helpful in terms of how you sell. Yeah, yeah, you run into challenges there as well, though. I mean, in terms of like, well, okay. You have your website and you have other materials. So, like, how much do you talk about the big vision of like where this thing is going and like, you know, and like the capabilities? And how much do you talk about 
okay, here's the things that you do that you can do with this today and like, you can deploy today. And so there's a, there's a natural tension there and you have to, you have to strike this balance very carefully. Yeah, and, and sort of the way that I've been thinking about this personally for Replicated is I try to make, we kind of came up with this philosophy that like, you know, our website really needs to be directed at the buyer, so the people that are going to buy from us. And I think what we have other sites, right? So we have Enterprise Ready, we have we're publishing a new thing pretty soon called OnPrem.org. And these are like the higher level, more strategic messages, right? So kind of publish your strategic messages on these content-oriented guides. And really, they're less branded by your company. And I think they're more viral and consumable that way as well. But you're really helping to deliver a vision that you believe in. But it's not really that commercial of a message. It's like, hey, we believe that this stuff is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have you know, your, your website talking to your buyer, and that's more actionable. And then I think you have to have, you know, for us, we really try to work with developers and give them the power to like leverage our tools and adopt our tools. And so, you know, there's there's open source websites and open source repos that are really kind of developer first. So it's really to me it's about, you know, these different properties speaking to different audiences and then helping that to lead to, you know, eventually a buy, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. That that's that's absolutely correct. And you really have to understand your customer and what is their problem? Like who are you talking to and what do they care about, right? And in some cases is this like the or the early adopter, you know, CIO who just recently joined the company wants to have like a major initiative, you know, is trying to push to get pushed forward a major initiative that is like really visionary and and uh, moving forward and then then the, you want to be kind of ride along with them and provide them all the ammunition and everything that they need, you know, is somebody that like there's a fire that they have to put out or they're like currently getting poked in the eye by something and they you're selling them something that to, to solve their their immediate problem and that's the thing that they care about so you really have to understand like who is the buyer within the organization and what do they care about and then you want to make sure that your, your message is very crafted towards that individual yeah I mean product marketing is hard right in the enterprise software space and the security ecosystem particularly there's just so much sort of like jargon and noise that it's hard to really differentiate and be clear about what you're doing you know because you're trying to tie to categories they're familiar with and trying to you know align with budget but at the same time you want to communicate the unique value you're bringing so yeah these are all the challenges of of uh, enterprise sales and I think it's gotten worse actually I mean it used to be that you know, you could do SDR work, and you could reach out to someone, and then you know, you got a re- you you would sometimes get a response, and people would be interested in this. Now, because like those channels have been so flooded, and now, I mean, like basically, like you you talk to you know modern CIOs and others in in IT um, in the enterprise, and there's so much there that they it's just become all noise, and they just block. And block all of it, and so you have to be really creative about how do you find and reach those people? Because yeah, I mean they're getting they're getting phone calls and emails and LinkedIn and so many things like just all the time, just inundated with all of this because it's very lucrative. Because I mean, like, look, if you think about all these you know these SDRs that are like working in all of these organizations, and you know if they get that deal, if that customer signs, that can make or break a company. That can you know make their quarter like all of this. So the sales has become increasingly 
uh, aggressive, mm-hmm. and that's actually turned off a lot of uh, a lot of customers on the other side. And so that also means that um, you have to be really careful and thoughtful in terms of how you engage with the customers. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always different challenges, right? And I think that rarely what used to work still works. That's kind of a constant theme in like everything. So you kind of have to find new channels, new ways to reach people, new approaches. You know, on the consumer side, this happens where a, a specific channel or source becomes saturated, right? So like there was so many businesses built on the back of AdWords back in the day. And then now it's like, to really build a business on AdWords, you're paying these huge prices. Mm-hmm. But so the the arbitrage opportunity was earlier in the market, and eventually the market sort of recognizes the actual market price, and so it just becomes you know harder to like you know actually create and extract value from that. So you sort of have to find new places, new ways to to do that. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you know, I think developer first. I think there's a there's a lot of promise in there. You have to approach it the right way. You know, if you just think I'm going to make an open source project and I throw it up on GitHub and then magically stuff is going to happen, like that's not the way that those uh, these things work. You have to be very thoughtful around. Uh, around how you approach it, you know, but especially like nowadays, it used to be that a lot of things were top down in IT departments and enterprise. Now you see a lot more kind of developer led, developer focus, you know, with, with DevOps and everything else, you know, in terms of them making the decisions about about so the like the tools that you use or these type of things. So I think there's a lot of value in providing you know this, this type of developer first, but again, like you have to do it in a really careful way. Yeah, of course, right? I think like. You have to respect your buyer. I think that's the most important. You respect the customer, respect that what they're doing. Like you can't be too aggressive. You can't talk down to them. There's a lot because like you want these people to respect you and to buy from you, and you have to show them respect in order to make that happen. So yes, absolutely. Cool. So what else are you thinking about? What's what's kind of next on your agenda for for UnifyID or for you know what do you what else are you seeing in the coming out of academia? What, what's exciting for you right now? Gosh, there's, um, you know, here at the company, like I mentioned, we've uh, we really we got started in 2016. You know, we we've um, we've worked on the technology for a while. You know, this is just personally, I very much want to see this problem get solved. I mean, this is really that's the, really the motivation behind like doing this, doing the company. Saw that there's like yes, there's a business opportunity there, but more fundamentally, it's just oh come on, guys, like. We can do this in a much better way. This is especially why I'm especially passionate around, you know, just moving off of like really bad forms of authentication, like your SMSs or like mother's maiden name or security questions. You know, you don't have to go full passwordless yet, but you know, at least like move off in that direction. And so, like much of the stuff we're doing is to to try to try to support those. Like I mentioned, like we, you know, we have a aggressive price point around you know around our push to auth service and. You know, again, it's just like trying to drive that te- that that type of adoption. That part is really important for us for uh, uh, for 2020. You know, just looking at the broader landscape of enterprise. So, enterprise software has always been this uh, like this area of huge potential that is still and will continue to be underserved. Because you know, when you think about startups and like people starting companies and doing new innovative things. Most of that energy is focused on the consumer market, and if you look at the on the enterprise side, 
there's you know large I mean, and I would argue even larger opportunities than on the consumer side, but there's much less of a focus on that side just because there's not as many people who are familiar with it, um, and it's a little bit of a foreign concept for uh, for individuals. Like an individual, like a, if you're if you're an entrepreneur and you, I mean, you use your own products all the time, you understand those. But unless you've done something within enterprise or have worked with you know in the enterprise space before, you don't necessarily understand or are comfortable with the needs of the enterprise because it really is a very different beast than consumer. I mean, you know, when we look for hiring, for example, and people in product and engineering and other places, you know, we really value that enterprise experience because it's such a different beast than uh, than we see on the consumer side. And so I think that what that means is that the, the pool of entrepreneurs and, and ideas and innovation is smaller. And so I think that means that that the enterprise market is continu- going to continue to be underserved, even though there's a massive opportunity there. And I think I think like you know investors um, see that as well. The investors are always interested in enterprise. Not all, even on the VC side, there's not that many VCs that really really truly understand um, enterprise but the ones that do like I think are like and are able to identify the real opportunities there identify the teams that can execute and win versus the ones that won't they're gonna win out big the other thing around enterprise is that these things take a long time I mean I mentioned like from my first company it was 10 years start to finish I heard a, a, a metric that that the median, Time for a, uh, like an outcome, like in terms of IPO or acquisition for a successful enterprise company, is ten point seven years. So from from start to finish. So the you know you have on the consumer side, especially you, know, you hear these stories about like you know these companies that are get acquired in eighteen months, twenty four months, these type of things. The enterprise one is a much uh, longer haul, and um, so I think again that kind of like maybe people shy away from it a little bit more. But the demand has not gone away and will only increase. Because I mean, I mentioned around like authentication and risk and fraud, like the majority of those costs are borne by the organizations. And so they have a desperate need to solve these problems. So, I mean, this, you know, individuals, it's like, yeah, oh, fine. I mean, like I, I lost my password, but like, you know, like they ultimately don't end up paying for that. It's the organizations that do. And I think that's the same, the same is going to be true, like where the both the liabilities and the opportunities are going to be very much on the enterprise side. Uh, that's going to continue to happen and only increase. And I think the supply, uh, because of the, the, the nature of enterprise and like the fact there's not not as many people who are familiar with it, the supply on that side is still going to be limited, which means I think that there's going to be a lot of great opportunities on the enterprise side. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you know that's one of the goals of Enterprise Reading this show is to try to encourage more folks to understand enterprise and kind of get the knowledge and and be able to to dive in and so because it's hard to hire people with enterprise software experience if the prerequisite for everyone is that everyone have enterprise software experience right so uh, we need folks to be able to come in and, and not have had that much experience but have some knowledge shared with them beforehand so hopefully we're helping to build that future yes i hope so yeah Awesome. John, thanks so much for your time. This was amazing. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. It was a great, great time, a great conversation. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. 
To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.